0: Get the lights on, please. All right, let's go Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, I think so. We're we're also changing computers this week, so who knows? All right. but uh, if you don't own a Bible of your very own, we have some physical ones kind of scattered around the room in the little racks beneath the seats. We believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things. But chief among all those really important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. Uh, we desperately want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by that knowing of him. And we believe that the scriptures are the thing that he uses to do that in you and around you and through you. And so we try to get creative around here and come up with unique ways of getting people to read their Bible more um, because we believe that God will use that. But if you don't have a Bible of your own, take that one. I'll call it the best part of my day. All right, so we have made it to week number eight now of our effort, uh, a series to kind of look more closely at the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Paul lists off nine things in Galatians chapter five uh, that are to be markers present and growing in the lives of God's people and and so this is our tagline for the the series what god's people look like. Uh, So we believe that these are things that ought to be seen, should be seen. Uh, Now the fruit of the Spirit are are far from an exhaustive list of everything that God's people ought to be. There's a hundred other places that we can turn into the Bible this morning and kind of say, all right, God's people ought to look like this and God's people ought to look like that. But the fruit of the Spirit is a pretty solid starting point, pretty solid list. And so we can say it this way, that Christians can certainly be far more than the fruit of the Spirit. They should never be anything less than the fruit of the Spirit. Right. The mature follower of Jesus ought to be able to point to these things present and growing in their lives. And so uh, the, the flip side of that is, is pretty dangerous, though. It means that if we can't point to these things present and growing in our lives, it's probably a giant red flag. There's a problem somewhere that needs to be addressed, a critical problem. There's a, there's a disconnect somewhere that, that's very, very dangerous. And so, in one sense, the fruit of the Spirit can often be used as a grid that we can hold up against our lives and try to make sure that we're producing the things that ought to be produced in God's people. This is what God's people look like, and we're aiming at them specifically. But what are the fruit of the Spirit? I mean, we're, if we're going to lean on them, we've got to know them, right? And so, this is the, the chance for every good church. You're giggling. Why are you giggling? This is the chance for every good church kid to shine, right? Time to flex your good Sunday school muscles. So every week we channel our inner Sunday school kid and we recite the fruit together as a church family. So you ready to do that? All right. What's up first? See, you're getting good at this, all right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all right, gentleness, self-control. All right, one more time. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We're on the fast track to everybody getting a hoodsie cup. It's going to be a good day. All right. If you haven't been here, Over the last several weeks, we've been taking each of these fruit in turn, or at least when I've I've been able to be here, we've been taking each of these fruit in turn, and we've been giving them kind of a closer look, a little bit of a a side eye. And we we gave ourselves four rules to follow that'll kind of help us make sure that we're always seeing the fruit correctly. Because if we start deconstructing things without some guardrails, we end up in the ditch, all right? And so we gave ourselves kind of four rules to make sure that we stayed on the pathway that we needed to stay on, and so the first rule that we gave is that the fruit are first and foremost a reflection of who God already is, of who God already is. In other words, God does not do arbitrary. He doesn't give arbitrary commands, especially to his people. The fruit are all caricature character, character traits. That's a hard word to say. I didn't even say it right that, that time. Right. Character traits, they're all character traits of himself in perfection which means that when God says do this or do that, it is never, and I mean ever, a call to conform ourselves to some kind of outward sense of a good person, outward standard of morality and character. It is always a call to make us look more and more like God, to better reflect His image, we would say. Which leads us to rule number two, because I know me. I looked in the mirror this morning. There's not a whole lot of God-likeness here. Like, I I fall short of that standard. And so the idea that I'm supposed to look more and more like God every day, that feels like a gigantic problem to me that I don't have a solution for. And here's the great news. Because the Bible teaches that I don't have an answer for that. I don't have a solution to that problem. In fact, the Bible teaches about as clearly as it teaches anything else that I'm in trouble if it's up to me. But the second rule that we gave ourselves is that these fruit do not originate in us. They belong to the Spirit. They're the Spirit's fruit, not our fruit. So it it, it doesn't matter what kind of work ethic you think you bring to the table. It doesn't matter if you kind of try to style yourself as the willpower guy. One of the clearest truths in the Bible is that sinful human hearts cannot white-knuckle our way into looking like God. We don't have what it takes. It is infinitely above our pay grade. So, so where's the good news in that? Well, the good news is that we haven't been asked to white-knuckle our way into anything. The Spirit is pleased to produce the fruit in us, those that belong to Him. He is pleased to produce the fruit in us as we walk in step with Him. As we make the daily decisions to <laughs> chase After what the Spirit values rather than what we naturally value, the Spirit creates in us a functional righteousness that matches a little more closely to our already declared righteousness. That doesn't mean that we just sit back and do nothing, right? Because, I mean, that's a pretty good game. Like a cruise ship faith sounds kind of awesome sometimes. Cruise ships are great. I've never been on one, but I hear they're awesome. (laughs) Get everything delivered to you. That's not what we've been called to. We haven't been called to a cruise ship faith, and we don't sit back and do nothing. We've been called to cultivate the growth of these fruit, and so we create the environment for these fruit to grow in by practicing these fruit, by putting them to work, and that's rule number three for us. We press into these things by trusting that the Spirit will produce them in us as we press into them. But we also gave ourselves one more rule. Do you remember what it was? Rule number four. That properly understood, the fruit will always, and I mean always, be seen to provide blessing to others. Both those inside the church and those outside the church will receive benefit from the Spirit producing these fruit in me. Every time. So, you ready to get into it this morning? What's our next fruit on the list? It's been a while. What is it? Faithfulness. Y'all are such good church kids. All right. Faithfulness. So, what is faithfulness, at least according to the world we live in? Well, best I can tell, best I can tell, faithfulness is most commonly tied to the ideas of loyalty and a sense of duty. We all on board with that one? Loyalty and a sense of duty. A standing resolute in spite of other circumstances trying to lure us or woo us away to better options, right? That's faithfulness. And while there's a prevailing cultural assumption that faithfulness is a good thing, right? We can all point to, you know, like Homeward Bound movies and stuff like that. Faithfulness is a great thing, right? There's this kind of culturally ingrained sense that faithfulness is a great idea. It wasn't hard at all this week to find a whole bunch of examples where faithfulness was seen as a bad thing. Spent some time on the Google machine this week. You got phrases in our vocabulary like um, faithful to a fault. And I don't have to explain what that means because everybody in here kind of already knows what that means, right? Like, that's a common thing that we just all kind of naturally understand. In fact, I, I bet everybody in here, whether personally or just through a friend of yours, has a story or two that they can share where somebody you cared about got burned real bad because they were faithful when everything around them proved that faithfulness wasn't called for in that moment. Right? I've got some stories of my own that I can share. but it also goes way beyond just people looking to take advantage of others and weren't strong enough to say no i i also found several examples this week in some of the online dictionaries where i go looking for for you know our, all of our content and so faithfulness is used in a negative sense oftentimes in a way to say that somebody blindly clung to some kind of outdated lifestyle or belief system even though the facts bore testimony otherwise, they just didn't care and they clung tightly. And that decision to remain faithful, and read that as their refusal to let go of that thing, it hampered the plans and ambitions of others. In other words, the faithful stood in the way of what others saw as necessary progress. Found that all over the place online this week. And so when it even when we see it and define it as a good thing, faithfulness often gets kicked around a little bit in our culture. Some people, faithfulness is Andy Griffin, or Griffith trying to hang on and survive in a Jetsons world. You know those two shows Are we all culturally aware enough? Just a few of you. I tried, I tried to hit the old guys, I, I promise. <laughs> no, it's like, Faithfulness is seen kind of as Andy Griffith in a Jetsons world. Like, good old Andy, right? He's going to hang on and keep doing what's good and right even as the world passes him by. Never fear, because old Andy values loyalty more than in people's opinions, right? You count on him to do his duty regardless of however much the pressure happens to ramp up. But there are several points in there. Where that idea of faithfulness, I think veers wildly away from the biblical idea. Wildly so. Um, It's here where we get to look at our text for the morning. So what's going on in Philippians? Well, this is the second time that we've been in this letter, in this series. Back in week four when we talked about peace, we were also in the book of Philippians. And we said then that Philippians is... A pretty tame letter compared to Paul's other church epistles, uh, compared to other letters that he wrote, like 1 and 2 Corinthians, Thessalonians, Galatians. Paul, in all of those letters, has a significant problem that he sees from far, and he's got to address it by writing them a letter. But that's not really the case that's going on in Philippians. Uh, Philippi doesn't really have any major junk. It's, uh, Paul's going to address an argument between two ladies uh, uh, later on in the letter, but most of what Paul writes in Philippians serves to Point to some good things that they've got going on there, and then use that encouragement, kind of leverage that encouragement to, uh, to to tell the church, instruct the Philippian church, to keep their foot on the gas and keep chasing after the best things, All right? And so he points to some good things and says, "That's great, that's awesome, but complacency is not enough, and good enough is not enough. No, 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 no. We have been called to press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." He says. And so today. Today, we actually get to look at the very beginning of the letter. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Read it with me. Paul says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so right out of the gate, we've got a whole bunch of stuff to, to pick apart there. So we're told that Paul's got Timothy with him as he's writing this letter. But like, like, who are Paul and Timothy to this church? Why should they care, right? Why would Philippi, the church at Philippi, be worried about or even care that Paul and Timothy are together while they're writing? Well, Paul and Timothy were there at the very beginning, Of the church at Philippi. Acts 16, the founding of the Philippian church. Paul and Timothy aren't some unknown yo-yos sticking their nose into other people's business, right? Like we think it had probably been about 10-ish years since Paul and Timothy had moved on from there to start other churches in other places, but they were foundational in the Philippian church even existing. There is no Philippian church without God using Paul and Timothy to raise up the Philippian church. We're also going to learn later on that the Philippian church is still actively supporting them financially as missionaries at the time that this letter is being written. And so if if the Philippian church has a Mount Rushmore past leaders, Paul and Timothy are both on it, highly influential in this group. And so all that's to say, this church knows exactly who Paul and Timothy are, but also Paul knows exactly who Paul and Timothy are. Who <laughs> Paul and Timothy are. What's What's interesting here to me is that, unlike unlike Paul's normal greeting to churches that all had junk, all had major problems he needed to correct. He normally starts out his letters, "Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God." He doesn't do that here. What does he call himself? Uh huh. In those other places, Paul's got to flex some some. You know, apostolic muscle just a little bit assert his authority but here he just calls timothy and himself servants of christ jesus so paul's not leaning on that authority right now he's more on his calling and identity in the kingdom Yes, he's an apostle. Yes, he carries around that gravitas, but he does not need to flex that muscle here. And so, as he's writing a letter to a church that knows him well, loves him well, is actively supporting him, Paul's aim is focused on helping the church at Philippi understand who they are and whom they follow. Just like Paul and Timothy are servants of Christ Jesus, so is this church. We're also told who the letter is addressed to. Normally, we wouldn't spend a bunch of time pointing this out, but we're praying and studying through the Scriptures together as a church family as we look to kind of change our leadership structure to what we would commonly call an elder-led model. And so we see evidence of that structure right here in Philippians 1. The word overseers there is the Greek word episkopos, if you're interested overseer, that word is used interchangeably all throughout the New Testament with a couple of other words, another word, a title, a word that translates to elder, and then a a verb form of the word shepherding. And so in the New Testament, elders and overseers are the same thing, and they shepherd, or we could say in another way, pastor a church. That's what we see here. So we're in the middle of talking about this stuff ourselves, and so i got to point it out in the text whenever it comes up. But Paul, uh, uh, Paul is writing to the saints, the Christians in Philippi, and he specifically mentions the leaders of their church, overseers and deacons. Just gives them a quick little nod. But in verse 3 he says this. It says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. All right, so w- what do we learn here? Well, we learned that Paul spent a ton of time praying for the Philippian church. That's cool, right? And apparently, that prayer is consistently joy-filled. He never shuts up thanking God for them. All right? That's how it goes. Which, let's be honest, it's quite a different tone than how Paul likely prays for the church that y'all looked at two weeks ago with Jeff, the church at Corinth, right? Like, those are different prayers for Paul, <laughs> Paul wants incredible good for both congregations, but only one of those churches keeps Paul up at night. Only one of those churches probably gives Paul an ulcer. It ain't Philippi. He's incredibly thankful for the Philippian church. But notice how often he's praying for them in verse 4. What does it say? Always in every prayer of mine. Now, I think, I'm just going to go ahead and drop a flag here. I think that's probably more hyperbole than literal probably. But there's a faithfulness here in Paul's prayer habit that seems to flow effortlessly out of his thankfulness for them. Effortlessly out of his thankfulness for them. He can't help but thank God for them. It's always on the front of his mind. So every time he's praying, he he thinks of the Philippian church and he just explodes with thankfulness in that moment. See, for Paul, for Paul, faithfulness to pray for the Philippian church is not birthed out of blind loyalty or a sense of duty. It's not what's going on here. It's birthed out of joy. Paul's not, Paul's not hanging on to some kind of old-fashioned faithfulness because you know he prefers to play the Andy Griffith role. He explodes with thankfulness for them every time he remembers them. And it produces a faithfulness It always comes through. Joy leads naturally to faithfulness. Because Paul is filled with joy for the Philippian church, what else could he do but faithfully pray for them? But Paul's not the only faithful one we can point to in this text. Look at verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I know it's a little section, but we can talk about it. Uh, So if you're new to the church thing, new to the Bible, if you haven't read through the the book of Philippians before, Paul comes back to this exact same thought uh, in chapter 4, verses 14 through 18. He spells out there that as he moved from starting the church at Philippi to uh, other places, taking the gospel to other places to start new churches, the Philippian church was actually the only church that he was connected to that helped him carry the gospel forward. They continued to support him financially so he could go off and start other new churches. What does that tell us? It tells us that Philippi was the missions-loving church. Like We kind of style ourselves as the missions-loving church. We're a little bit like Philippi. At least the best parts of us. Philippi was the missions-loving church. And yes, they said yes to helping him take the gospel somewhere else. They stood up and said, yeah, we'll own that responsibility. And so there's an incredible faithfulness to be found in Philippi too, right? But that faithfulness is not born out of blind loyalty or a sense of duty any more than it was for Paul. In Philippians 4.18, Paul says there that their support for him is, quote, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable to God. See, for the Philippian church, for the Philippian church, faithfulness is rooted in their love for Paul, and it's rooted in a proper worship of the Lord. They don't have to Andy Griffith their way through this thing either. It comes naturally out of them. We can say it a different way: it flows out of them organically because they loved Paul and they want to honor Jesus. What else could they be but faithful? And so. Faithfulness to support Paul is a natural response that doesn't have to be forced out of them. It just flows out of them. It's just who they are and what they do in response to the opportunity they saw in front of them. But as great as those reasons are, the Philippians' faithfulness is also rooted in something I think that's way deeper than that. Look at verse 6. Paul says, And I am sure of this, That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If you had to pressure me into picking one verse that was my favorite verse in the Bible, this one's it. This one's it. I'm going to read it again because I can. All right? I got the face mic. I can do it. All right. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So the Philippian church has extended themselves for the sake of lovingly serving Paul and the cause of the gospel, right? And Paul says here that they can trust that that faithful effort is worth it. Hear me, not, not because it's guaranteed to bring them back exactly what they spent. That's not what he said. Well, you invested this thing, God's going to make sure that you get the return on your investment. And it's not even because God has promised to make every penny of their investment fruitful for kingdom growth. That'd be really fun. Those are often the reasons that we want to hold up in the church, broader church culture as reasons why we should invest ourselves in kingdom work. Those are often the two biggest reasons that we point to and say, yeah, yeah, God will do this and God will do that. But that's not at all what Paul grounds the trust for their investment in. Paul grounds the trust from their investment in the reality of God's faithfulness to complete the work of righteousness he began in them. Meaning, God kicked all of this off by declaring them holy. And he will do every single thing that is necessary to actually make them holy. We can say it in a more theologically sophisticated way. God has justified them and he is sanctifying them and he will one day glorify them. I don't oh, know, Stephen, I'm kind of squirrely. A little slippery guy. I'm sure, I mean, God probably hasn't met anybody as messed up as me yet. I mean, sure, he sent his son to make payment for my sin, but have you seen how jacked up my life gets sometimes? It's a mess. If I were in his seat, I'd given up a long time ago. Yeah, I get that. In fact, I've, I've thought it. The problem is that the logic is fundamentally flawed. Flawed in every way. This is a misunderstanding of the gospel that I think way too many people in our world believe. Even Even people who call themselves Christians and are actively involved in healthy churches, this is a misunderstanding that fundamentally misunderstands both God's character and your ability to screw it up. Right, see, according to Paul, according to Philippians one six, you cannot outrun his grace and provision for you. You don't have the legs for it. Did you imagine me trying to race like Usain Bolt? I <laughs> think I got him. <laughs> I can take him. I'd lose before the first meter mark, right? <laughs> He'd be at the finish line before I actually got out of the blocks. In the exact same way, we, in the exact same way that we cannot white-knuckle our way into holiness, neither can we mess up bad enough to somehow nullify the work that he has seen fit to do and intends to continue doing in you. We're not fast enough to outrun him. You might very well be a giant mess, maybe a bigger mess than everybody in the room, but part of your problem is that you're giving yourself way too much credit. You don't deserve that much credit. He is faithful and good, and for those he is saving by his grace, his grace is sufficient to sanctify you, period. So Paul says here, takes that theological truth, he points to that theological truth and he says here that the church at Philippi, they can take a confident step towards faithfulness all because the one they put their hope in is infinitely faithful towards them. And he will use even that extending of themselves in his grand plan to get them where he wants them to be. See, for God... For God, faithfulness is not birthed out of blind loyalty or a sense of duty either. It's birthed out of who He is. It's birthed out of His character playing out in perfection. And this is the part of our, our time this morning where we most clearly see the first rule in place, Right? Before Paul and the Philippian church can act faithfully towards each other, they are first positioned and then carried along by the God who is infinitely faithful towards them. (laughs) And so any call, any call to faithfulness on our part is never about clenching our eyes tight and trying to be more like Andy Griffith. It's not the game. We're not digging deep for some old-fashioned sense of duty. No, it is about looking more and more and more like our God. And so now we got a new problem, right? Which is why we need rule number two, because I'm not faithful like he's faithful. I don't have that in the tank. And so rule number two comes to our rescue. I haven't been called to try and come up with an intrinsic faithfulness. I, I, I no, no matter how hard I try, I can't even look like Andy Griffith, let alone God. I need the Spirit to grow that in me. Rule two comes to my rescue because I haven't been called to try to come up with anything intrinsic in myself. And thanks be to God, that's exactly what He is in the business of doing. He produces that in me as I walk in step with Him. And so I can take the next step, trusting in His faithfulness to bring me to completion, like He said He would. But what about rule number three? are called to cultivate, to, to practice these things, right? We'll look at verse 7. Paul says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I, I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. Verse 8, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with, all of, or with the affection of Christ Jesus. All right. So Paul's not sitting around doing nothing here, right? Which is interesting because like, um, he's, he's under house arrest when he's writing this. Like, If anybody gets the excuse to sit around and do nothing, it's kind of like Paul in this exact moment. But even under house arrest, he's still got control, or at least some control, of cultivating good things. So don't you ever bring your just, I, I just can't right now to Paul. He don't care. Right? He ain't got time for that. Right? Even under arrest in Rome, he is actively cultivating a faithfulness towards the Philippians. We're told that he holds them in his heart and then he yearns for them with the affections of Christ. Let's be honest. If Paul wasn't a tent maker, he probably could have done his second job as like a Valentine's Day card writer. Missed the boat on that, I guess. I don't know. There's there's an active leaning in by Paul to try and unite himself to the Philippian church. Even far away under house arrest in Rome, he is constantly doing the little things to keep them at the front of his mind, and he trusts that God will take that feeble little effort and he will actually use it to unite his heart to them and their heart to him. If you haven't put the pieces together yet, listen, this is the exact reason why we have committed to telling y'all about missionaries we support at the beginning of every service. Like, it's literally the reason that we're praying for them, even if we're not able yet to send teams to them or send money to them or send whatever to them. Just like Paul. Exactly like Paul. We trust that God will actually use that. And He'll shape that We we'll trust that He will unify us to, uh, to each other and cause us to have real affections for the people that we're learning about and praying for, that, uh, that we're trying to get to those things. We're confident that God will use that feeble effort and do something gigantic with it. By cultivating a faithfulness to regularly pray for our missionaries and church partners, we trust that God will turn that into real and tangible love for them. That goes far beyond puny little ideas like loyalty and duty. you kidding me? We want more than loyalty and duty. We want affections. And in turn, the growth of that fruit will end up being a real blessing to others. Look at verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So God's faithfulness leads to growing his faithfulness in us. Our cultivation of faithfulness will lead to an abounding love for each other, filled with knowledge and discernment, we're told both those inside the church and outside the church will benefit from the fruit uh, of faithfulness just kind of growing and flourishing in us. And so the church is built up and the gospel moves forward and God's name is glorified through every moment of it. That's what Paul's saying. Surely that's what we want here, right? As we press into these things, the church is strengthened. And more and more people hear about Jesus and God isn't, God's name is made more famous to everyone involved. And those are some really good long-term goals. Like we should totally be aiming for those things, but what about what about stuff today? Like how do we respond to God's word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is Every single week, all right? We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, man, I I think he's showing us that his good character is really good news for us. It's really good news for us. Listen, we, we don't have to worry about him changing his mind. You ever thought through that? What if God changed his mind? He won't can't. It's really good news that he won't. I'd be in a lot of trouble if he changes his mind. We don't have to worry about him going, growing tired of all the effort involved because he didn't see it coming. Sorry I didn't sign up for this much. I've had moments where I got into the middle of a project and went, uh-oh, have you had moments like that? God's never had a moment like that. No, never, never have to worry about him changing his mind. We never have to worry about him growing tired of all the effort involved. No, God will do everything he has said he will do, period. Including my favorite verse in the Bible. Complete the good work that he began in you. So I think our response this week probably probably needs to take the shape of whatever next step he's calling you to. And with full confidence that he's going to use that call to produce his intended righteousness in you, you go ahead and take that step. You go ahead and extend yourself towards that good thing. I think you can probably trust him. I think you can trust him. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe that's by formally joining our church family, or maybe it's to, it's time to finally say yes to uh, Jesus' call to be baptized, time to be obedient in that, or, or maybe it's time to faithfully step out and take the gospel to some far away place. Listen, you're going to need God's faithfulness in that moment, and that's exactly what He's promised to give you, so just lean in. I'd love to be helpful to you as you process through what that response looks like. But what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet? Can you respond to God's Word? I think you absolutely can. You do that by meeting Jesus. The Bible teaches that we are all by default separated relationally from God because of our sin and that we are owed the right and just punishment for our sin. He is also faithful to give everyone what they deserve. But the Bible also teaches that it is while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. The eternal Son of God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He lived the sinless life that neither you nor I am capable of living. He died on the cross in your place to make payment for your sin. And He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of His perfect and sufficient righteousness. The check is cleared. It's cleared. Now as the King who conquered sin and death, He calls on you in this very moment to respond to Him in repentance and in faith to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And it is in his perfect faithfulness that Jesus' work is joyfully accounted to you for salvation if you would but repent and believe. You can do that this morning. You can respond to Jesus in saving faith. Man, I'd love to be helpful to you as you kind of make sense of that. If you want somebody to talk to, I'll be down front as we sing. But I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. And However God's word is calling you to respond this morning. Let's respond together as a church family right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for Philippians. Thank you for... A reasonable example of faithfulness in the Scriptures, both from Paul and from Philippi. But just like Paul and Philippi, we don't want to try to white-knuckle our way into being better at something. What we want is hearts that have been changed to love something. And that's your work. We'll be diligent to put the steps in front of us, but you're the one who changes hearts always and forever. And so, God, as we try to do the simple things that we can to love each other and love our church and love those outside of our church and all the above, would you help us take steps of faithfulness as you unite our hearts well. Father, for those here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Open eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to know you, to love you to be forever changed by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.